0: HPPodcraft.com The sexton stood in the porch of Milford Meeting House, pulling busily at the bell rope. The old people of the village came stooping along the street. Children with bright faces tripped merrily beside their parents, or mimicked a graver gait in the conscious dignity of their Sunday clothes. Spruce bachelors looked sidelong at the pretty maidens, and fancied that the Sabbath sunshine made them prettier than on weekdays. When the throng had mostly streamed into the porch, the sexton began to toll the bell, keeping his eye on the Reverend Mr. Hooper's door. The first glimpse of the clergyman's figure was the signal for the bell to cease its summons. But what has good Parson Hooper got upon his face? Cried the sexton in astonishment.
1: Well, sexton, I'm here to tell you that that is not mustard on the minister's face. And that is not Miss Sally's Black Veil, but The Minister's Black Veil <laughs> by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And we're talking about it, the story, The Minister's Black Veil, not the actual Minister's Black Veil, even though that will be talked about. But specifically the story, The Minister's Black Veil by Nathaniel Hawthorne is our topic of conversation <laughs> on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast.
2: You're at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer.
1: And I'm Chris Lackey.
2: And uh, did you ever do that thing in school where you were given a segment of a story and then not the ending and your teacher would have you you know, write out an ending to it or complete it?
1: I remember that. I can't remember any of the fruits of that labor, though.
2: I would love to give that story opening we just heard to a group of middle school kids. But what <laughs> that... is good Parson Hooper got upon his face, cried the sexton in astonishment. Here you go, kids finish that story for me i'm not even going to tell you what a sexton is you can make that up too go nuts by the way a sexton is somebody who looks after a church rings the bell
1: you know we actually defined that on an earlier episode did we yeah oh, uh, see you do
2: have a good memory for these things eh. Well, let me ask you this. Can you remember
1: whose voice you just heard? Ooh, wow. Uh, let me feign ignorance and say, no, I don't know whose voice that was. You
2: fool, that was Mr. Andrew Lehman. Oh,
1: Andrew Lehman, of course.
2: Making his triumphant return to the show, I thought, some spooky Hawthorne, time for some spooky Lehman. Not only do we have Andrew Lehman, but we have a, a show sponsor. This month we are proud to be sponsored by an anthology that everybody should go out and pick up. It's a book called *Cthulhu Lives*, an Eldritch tribute to H.P. Lovecraft.
1: Uh, Chad, it's called *Cthulhu Lives*.
2: That's right. It's got an exclamation point at the end.
0: *Cthulhu
1: Lives*. Seventeen masterful tales of cosmic horror inspired by H.P. Lovecraft's work. That's
2: right. It's uh, put out by Ghostwoods Books and edited by Salome Jones, whom I believe is an American in England, like you. Ghostwoods is also a fair trade publisher. I don't know if you've heard of this before, but they split their profits with their authors. which is pretty amazing oh, wow. uh, for a company to do. So I would want to support these guys no matter what they put out. It just so happens that they've put out a book that aligns directly with our audience's interests. And the authors lined up in this publication are, are great, too. I've read some of the stories. You, you read some of them, didn't you?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I read Greg Stolze, who's a personal friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm rather biased, but he is one of the greatest American authors ever. <laughs> uh, he did the story called Ick, which is kind of about a boy who's sort of an outcast coming, coming of age sort of a nerd. Uh-huh. Nothing Greg would really understand. I'm surprised he's writing about this stuff. Yeah, you too. I mean, it's Yeah, I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> I've never had to relate to any of that kind of thing before. But it's, it's got a mythos uh, kick on it, you know? Well, I got hooked right away because
2: the first story, uh, Universal Constance by Pierce Beckley, yeah. is about using a super collider to learn about the universe. Yeah, there's
1: another know? one uh, by Geoff Brown called Visiting Rights that I enjoyed, which is a story about a boy who who's got a stepdad and a mom who seem like they're kind of into some weird stuff mm-hmm. and the kid wants to spend more time with his real dad because he doesn't like his stepdad and it's it's pretty pretty interesting and maybe not quite what you would expect it to be
2: yeah i also really dug uh, john repian's story on the banks of the river jordan you know warren ellis says this i book do is. know warren ellis he says this book is an impure celebration of the new mythology and that, that's a good pitch Because I like my books impure Cthulhu Lives is available in paperback Or as an ebook. book uh, yes. Please pick it up It supports our show It supports good fiction It supports these authors And uh, we'll link out to the title In our show notes
1: Yeah, let's get back to the story Wait, cool. You should say Let's get back to the story I don't remember who starts talking first
2: Nathaniel Hawthorne is taught in school Yes Quite a bit and This is an author That's going to be familiar to A lot of our listeners A lot of folks had to read The Scarlet Letter Probably their freshman year At least here in America yeah, Maybe has some associations that aren't great because of that experience But I think that he's an excellent weird fiction author yeah. And completely appropriate to have on our podcast
1: Our story starts off with a minister in a Puritan village of Milford mm-hmm. In New England Who one day just comes out wearing a black veil And that concludes the summary of the story <laughs> <laughs> So Pfeiffer, what did you think of it? You know, I think it had a little bit too much going on <laughs> It
2: was kind of a, a busy, loud story. No, I...
1: <laughs> but there, there's a bit more going on than that, and we should probably get into it. And so the minister's name is Reverend Hooper.
2: Right, and and the story's set in Puritan New England. And we're going to be talking about Hawthorne all month. We, we've decided we're going to do those stories. Yes. Uh, it's Nathaniel Vember, <laughs> I'm going to say, unless somebody's got a better one. Um, so there will be plenty of time for bio, but if you're unfamiliar with Hawthorne, you know, he was an 1800s guy. Mm-hmm. I know from teaching that sometimes people think that he was 1700s because he chose to write in the puritanical technical setting so much. But right. he was, you know, a contemporary of Poe. And this story was published when he was in his 30s, first in the 1836 edition of The Token, An Atlantic Souvenir, later in his 1837 collection Twice Told Tales. And one thing I like about Hawthorne that I don't remember having this taught in school, but that he was pretty savvy as a public figure. And one of the things he liked to do was represent himself as a a modest, struggling writer, even when he was very successful. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he really was good at cultivating this false modesty, or it might not have been false, but he wanted people to feel like he was kind of on their level and then be blown away by his writing. And I think Uh that anthology, Twice Told Tales, is a great example of that because the title is is, um, a reference to Shakespeare's King John. The line, life is as tedious as a twice-told tale, vexing the dull ear of a drowsy man. (laughs) The point is, like, yeah, these are some kind of lame stories, but go ahead and give them a spin. Yeah. Now, Poe liked him quite a bit, and I've got some criticism from Poe of his stories that we can get into later. Sure. I do think Hawthorne really fits into the tradition from Hawthorne to Poe to to Lovecraft.
1: Absolutely, yeah. But did you know those guys actually wrestled once?
2: I do, yeah, yeah. What are you talking about?
1: (laughs) The Poe and Hawthorne that got in a wrestling match. Tell me Uh, about it. Well, because it wasn't the writing. There as was many some,
2: details as you can.
1: There was some disagreement uh, about who was the superior writer. And mm-hmm. they, they figured the only way to settle it was by uh, physical conflict. So the two of them set off to wrestle. And they wrestled in a public. Oh, it was
2: public. So it was more, was it or was it WWF kind of style? No,
1: style? no, no. It was like a Greco-Roman kind of style.
2: Poe didn't get a folding chair. And <laughs> no. <laughs> whacked Nathaniel over the head. <laughs> no,
1: no. It was just a straight up wrestling match. Who was the winner? Everybody was the winner. <laughs> just so there's no confusion, I completely fabricated that story. I just want to make sure that that I'm not starting some kind of um, rumor. That, uh, well, uh, you know, but it happened. sounds
2: true. It does sound true. <laughs> um, <laughs> the one, one fact that is true, uh, that may be of significance, is that yeah. uh, Hawthorne was the great-great-grandson of Judge John Hawthorne, spelled right. without the W, but Judge Hawthorne was involved in the Salem Witch Trials. He was one of the judges. Yeah. He was actually the only judge who was completely unrepentant about his role in yeah. killing those people. Uh, and I think that that haunted Nathaniel throughout his life. But anyway, seminal figure in American literature. We're going to talk more about him. I think most of his work is laced with horror and menace and the weird. And that is nowhere better exemplified than a minister just showing up to church one day wearing a black veil.
1: When he does this, people are a bit freaked out by it. But nobody says anything to him, no. which is the craziest part about it. He just goes on with his duties and he doesn't explain to anybody why he's got it. He doesn't act any different. He doesn't mm-hmm. change his behavior in any way. Now, the veil specifically, it it doesn't cover his whole face. It just covers the top half of his face. And you can just make out his mouth. Right. You know, you can see it like his upper lip. So every time he talks, the veil sort of flutters a bit.
2: Yeah, which and I'm going to say that's a great detail. I like it yeah. every time they make reference to it in the story. It just lends the spookiness to it you can see the veil moving back and forth with his breath and this isn't an old dude at the beginning of the story here the reverend is about 30 still a bachelor it says which is important to note because there's some stuff that might confuse you about this later
1: yeah i was confused about that as well and we we need to (laughs) talk about that
2: we will but uh there's a description of the veil right away it says swathed about his forehead and hanging down over his face so low as to be shaken by his breath mr hooper had on a black veil On a nearer view, it seemed to consist of two folds of crepe, which entirely concealed his features except the mouth and chin, but probably did not intercept his sight, further than to give a darkened aspect to all living and inanimate things. Ooh. When it's first... Yeah, which is cool writing. Yeah, yeah. When it's first introduced, it's from his point of view, almost, Mm -hmm. how he sees through the veil and how it gives everything else a darkened aspect. And I think that's important because... This story is described as a parable. So the first time we see the veil come down, we're you know we see how they perceive him coming through, and then immediately we see through his eyes. It's you know the veil is being laid over our eyes in its first description. Right. There's a footnote you know under the title that says Minister's Black Veil, a parable. And then in the original printing from the token, there's a footnote that says another clergyman in New England, Mr. Joseph Moody of York, Maine, who died about 80 years since made himself remarkable by the same eccentricity that is here related of Reverend Mr. Hooper. In his case, however, the symbol had a different import. In early life, he had accidentally killed a beloved friend. And from that day till the hour of his own death, he hid his face from men. So it's based on a a kind of real incident.
1: But in the real incident, you understand why he's doing it. As weird or strange as it may be, there's still a reason and you understand that that's all that it is. Correct. what drives the story is that you don't ever really understand why he's wearing this black veil no you can't it, get an inkling of maybe what's going on with him but you're not sure and then that's where all of the weirdness comes in
2: <laughs> right and people aren't dealing with it well right away when he shows up the sexton's saying i can't really think he's behind that thing right goodman gray cries our parson has gone mad <laughs> I think somebody, you know, he comes up to the pulpit and he turns around and he just goes about his business as usual this first day he shows up with it. Yeah, yeah. But there's a, it says more than one woman of delicate nerves was forced to leave the meeting house. So some people are getting up and just leaving. It's disturbing them so much.
1: Yeah, he was a good preacher, this guy. But he's not, they make the distinction to say that he was not a fire and brimstone kind of guy. He was much more subtle and mild. He delivers this sermon that seems pretty relevant to this current situation.
0: The sermon which he now delivered was marked by the same characteristics of style and manner as the general series of his pulpit oratory. But there was something, either in the sentiment of the discourse itself or in the imagination of the auditors, which made it greatly the most powerful effort that they had ever heard from their pastor's lips. It was tinged rather more darkly than usual with the gentle gloom of Mr. Hooper's temperament. The subject had reference to secret sin and those sad mysteries which we hide from our nearest and dearest, and would fain conceal from our own consciousness, even forgetting that the omniscient can detect them. A subtle power was breathed into his words. Each member of the congregation, the most innocent girl and the man of hardened breast, felt as if the preacher had crept upon them behind his awful veil and discovered their hoarded iniquity of deed or thought. Many spread their clasped hands on their bosoms. There was nothing terrible in what Mr. Hooper said, at least no violence. And yet with every tremor of his melancholy voice, the hearers quaked. An unsought pathos came hand in hand with awe, so sensible with the audience of some unwanted attribute in their minister, that they longed for a breath of wind to blow aside the veil, almost believing that a stranger's visage would be discovered. Though the form, gesture, and voice were those of Mr. Hooper. You
1: know, this kind of reminds me of King in Yellow a little bit, you know, or at least some of the mythos surrounding it, where there's this covered face that speaks horrible truths, Mm -hmm. that the things that he's saying in this sermon are so powerful and strange that people just can't believe that it's him.
2: Yeah, it's such a simple thing. They keep pointing out that it's just a piece of crepe. And it shades things for him, but right away it's very clear that he sees it as a symbol. I mean, he wouldn't have delivered this secret sin sermon unless he weren't conscious of the fact that the veil was going to be affecting his audience. Yeah. His sermon and the symbol remind people that they are hiding something, that everybody's hiding a sin. Even though God can see it, we still fool ourselves and and try Mm -hmm. to – which makes the veil a really killer teaching aid, but is – Is he doing it for the benefit of his parishioners or is he actually guilty about something and he's being a little defensive, you know? Sure. (laughs) Like, hey, you're all guilty too.
1: When I'm reading this, I think that I want there to be a supernatural explanation for it because I like that. But Mm -hmm. I keep going back and forth between thinking, okay, no, it's just a guy who's made a choice and he's trying to say something. Like it's a, you know, parable. Yeah. that's, That's going on but there are all these hints and clues that there's much more going on than just a parable
2: right but what would a supernatural explanation
1: i don't know i don't know that's the th- that's what makes it good weird fiction it's <laughs> like i can't again like with Seton's aunt mm. there's something seemingly supernatural that I can't put my finger on.
2: Well, definitely it inspires people with dread and fear. Mm -hmm. I never really considered that anything supernatural was going on, but I do think that the central question is whether it's a result of his own guilt over something or if it's just a, a symbol that he's using to teach a lesson. Right. It's hard to say. Or, yeah, I mean, it could be that he's actually a pig monster under there and he doesn't want
1: people to Well, or maybe some sort of sin that he's committed is so horrible that he's become disfigured. Yeah, sure. You know, that's what I was thinking. It's some sort of evil has manifested on his face and he's got to cover it up or.
2: Well, it doesn't really matter because we never find out. And the veil itself is enough for people to ostracize him. Yeah. After the service, he greets the crowd as he normally would. And some folks would normally invite him over for food, but they plum forget to do it. Yeah. You know, So he just walks right through and decides he's going to go into the parsonage. Uh, he's got this slight smile on his face. There's a great conversation between this physician and his wife at this point. The doctor says the black veil, though it covers only our pastor's face, throws its influence over his whole person and makes him ghost-like from head to foot. Do you not feel it so? Truly I do, she says, and I would not be alone with him for the world. I wonder he is not afraid to be alone with himself. Men sometimes are so, said her husband. Mm. It is hard to be alone with yourself, maybe, if you are tortured by something.
1: or Yeah, and, and and it could be that, again, it pulls me back to, like, he's done something really horrible. He can't bear to look at his own face anymore or show his face. Maybe that's mm-hmm. what it's about. And I think that's what his parishioners are thinking as well. They're just immediately putting this sort of evil aura on him that he's done something bad or he is bad in some way.
2: And not just asking him in order to dispel it. They're just, no, you know.
1: But then again, I think that people are so afraid of it that they just dare not ask because they don't really want to know the answer, maybe.
2: It, well, also at this point, they don't know was that some kind of thing that he just did for the sermon that maybe we didn't get. It was just right. a ill-planned visual aid. But unfortunately, he, he shows up again.
1: Yeah, this, later that uh, afternoon, there's a funeral for a young girl and he's still wearing the mask. So it's
2: odd because he bends over the coffin to say farewell to this young woman, her dead body. Mm-hmm. And the veil swings out a little bit so it's as if the dead maiden could see his face he Mm -hmm. he grabs the veil and bunches it up again real fast he doesn't want that to happen (laughs) there's a cool moment a person who saw this happen affirmed that at the instant when the clergyman's features were disclosed the corpse slightly shuddered rustling the shroud and muslin cap of the countenance retained the composure of death
1: that's some supernatural stuff going on there man it like, is
2: but then it, it then the next uh, the next sentence a superstitious old woman was the only witness of this prodigy <laughs> 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 which i <laughs> thought was funny but i can see it man you're right well also there's a little moment here after that that's
1: supernatural right right somebody's watching him as he leaves and then the other person says what why do you look back and he goes well It it seemed that the minister and the maiden spirit were walking hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Like, just for a second, I thought I saw that.
2: But then the other parishioner says, you know what? I had the same kind of vision at the same moment. That sounds pretty supernatural. I, I was reading that in Poe's analysis of this story, because he, he thinks this story is written to actually be somewhat of a mystery. Funny that he would think that. But that you're <laughs> supposed to, you know, the intent is somewhat that you're supposed to figure out why he's wearing the veil. That, that right. there is a reason. His theory was that the Reverend had an affair with this young lady because the event of her funeral is the first day he puts the veil on. That's why he's wearing it. That's what it's all about. Okay. I guess if you think about Hawthorne's preoccupations, Scarlet Letter is a... sure. A, a reverend and a, and a young lady getting it on. So maybe there is something like that going on.
1: Could be. I, I didn't feel that, though, in this story. And even hearing that take on it, it seems plausible, just doesn't feel right. Because it feels like there's so much more going on than that.
2: Certainly. And it's not explicitly stated at all. That's the last we really hear about her. Mm-hmm. And, and the veil was at least kind of appropriate at the funeral. But then that night he shows up at a wedding. Yeah. <laughs> Some of his prisoners are having still got the veil on. What a drag, you know? <laughs> it says, if ever another wedding were so dismal, it was that famous one where they told the wedding knell, which is confusing, except that is actually a reference to another story called the wedding nell, which appeared in the token that he wrote, uh-huh. another one of his own stories. You know, you see Hawthorne referencing his own story there? Oh, uh, right, yeah. Kind of interesting. You take this out of context, you don't know what it is, but – no. Some scholars now think that what he was doing was he was trying to establish the Hawthorne cinematic universe. Oh, right! By making a small passing reference to the other story, that makes sense. So I'm looking forward to that. Those films. I think it's the Minister's Black Veil, and then there'll be Rappaccini's Daughter, where she's got the poison breath. You know, they all have oh, their right, different
1: powers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then uh, Black Panther. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, now at the wedding, the Reverend catches the gl- a glimpse of himself in the mirror. Yes. And he has a little flip out about it. Like he runs away after seeing himself in the mirror.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know what that's about either. Like, because if he's got the veil on, then he doesn't know he shouldn't be seeing his face. But then is it that he forgot that he had the black veil on? And then when he saw it, he was scared because he was wearing the black veil. Like,
2: it's such a horrible thing to behold. And since he, you know, he's behind it, he doesn't know what it looks like. But when he does behold himself, and it says in the story that throughout the rest of his life, spoiler alert, he never takes it off.
0: Never takes it off. He
2: avoids mirrors the whole time. He doesn't want to see himself because... Because it's such a fear-inspiring thing.
1: Uh, one person who finally does get the courage to ask him about his bail is his wife. <laughs> it's his fiance. Fiance. Yeah, but they don't—they don't call her a fiance, right?
2: You have to read the sentence in the right way. So the first time I read this just yeah. now, I thought, "Oh, he's married." It was a huge surprise to me. What? Because uh-huh. I would think that she would have seen him put this on, or what? you know, been a bit. But what it, what it says is there was one person in the village who could ask him mm-hmm. and it said as his plighted wife it should be her privilege to know what the black veil concealed so if you read that the right way sh- she should know because she will be his wife
1: oh okay
2: and so when i reread it and saw at the beginning it saying that he was a bachelor then i figured out oh this is just his fiance, which makes more sense yeah the action that she takes if she, if, if it was his wife and she left him that would be much more of a scandal given that He's the reverend in the community. But anyway, she's pretty used to him, obviously, because she's his fiance. So to her, I mean, it's kind of like if you were to show up at home with a veil. Yeah. You know, I doubt Rachel would be inspired with fear. (laughs) (laughs) Right. She'd be like, what are you doing? You look like a beekeeper.
0: Take that
1: off. You creeped me out. Uh, She speaks up and finally says something to him
0: no said she aloud and smiling there is nothing terrible in this piece of crape except that it hides a face which i am always glad to look upon come good sir let the sun shine from behind the cloud first lay aside your black veil then tell me why you put it on mr hooper's smile glimmered faintly there is an hour to come said he when all of us shall cast aside our veils Take it not amiss, beloved friend, if I wear this piece of crepe till then. Your words are a mystery too, returned the young lady. Take away the veil from them, at least. Elizabeth, I will, said he, so far as my vow may suffer me. Know then, this veil is a type and a symbol, and I am bound to wear it ever, both in light and darkness, in solitude and before the gaze of multitudes, and as with strangers, so with my familiar friends. No mortal eye will see it withdrawn. This dismal shade must separate me from the world. Even you, Elizabeth, can never come behind it. What grievous affliction hath befallen you, she earnestly inquired, that you should thus darken your eyes forever? If it be a sign of mourning, replied Mr. Hooper, I, perhaps, like most other mortals, have sorrows dark enough to be typified by a black veil.' But what if the world will not believe that it is the type of an innocent sorrow, urged Elizabeth. Beloved and respected as you are, there may be whispers that you hide your face under the consciousness of secret sin. For the sake of your holy office, do away the scandal. The color rose into her cheeks as she intimated the nature of the rumors that were already abroad in the village. But Mr. Hooper's mildness did not forsake him. He even smiled again, that same sad smile, which always appeared like a faint glimmering of light, proceeding from the obscurity beneath the veil. If I hide my face for sorrow, there is cause enough, he merely replied, and if I cover it for secret sin, what mortal might not do the same?
1: So this stumps her for a bit and she starts to cry. Then this is the kind of the strange part. She's hit with this feeling, this feeling that takes place of her sorrow. It says, her eyes were fixed insensibly on the black veil when, like a sudden twilight in the air, its terrors fell around her. She arose and stood trembling before him.
2: Suddenly she's able to see the veil in the same way that the parishioners do. Right. And I don't know what triggers the change. I assume it's because he's told her, I I can't take it off and I can't reveal what's beneath it and it's not going anywhere and suddenly the barrier is there and she sees Mm -hmm. it for
1: what it is she gets up and she's gonna leave and and he says no wait please just be patient with me just i'm still the same person under this and one day when we die we're in heaven together all will be revealed Mm -hmm. and she's just like please and she's out of there
2: he's got more belief in heaven than than she does
1: i i guess i
2: mean it's a test of faith as well if if we truly believe in this afterlife then What does it matter if I have the veil over my face in this world?
1: Well, that she'll have to spend 40, 50 years with some dude whose face she can't see.
2: Yeah, I mean, it would be like dating Cobra Commander. I wouldn't want to do it either. (laughs) Uh, She leaves, and then he's got this kind of sad smile. It says he smiled to think that only a material emblem had separated him from happiness, though the horrors which it shadowed forth must be drawn darkly between the fondest of lovers. And I think the implication is that even closest lovers in the world, there's still a veil between them. You know, they're still strangers to each other in some secret way. Yeah. We
1: can never really know each other. I mean, it's so important to see another person's face. There's so much that's communicated between people in their facial expression. Yeah. It's really important to see another person's face when you're dealing with them.
2: Yeah, just on a practical level, it would be terrible to be married to somebody who must have been that way for Prince's girlfriend when he went through that phase. Like, <laughs> didn't he have like a gold <laughs> veil for a while when he wasn't Prince?
1: Yeah, but I think you could still see through his that veil. It wasn't one of those totally opaque veils. It was just... Well,
2: I mean, but how much torture to be, you know, together with Prince and not be able to see Prince?
1: That's probably the worst torture of all time.
2: I can't think of anything
1: worse. They should do that to... <laughs> To terrorists that they kidnap. <laughs> they should say, guess what? You're married to Prince now. They get so happy. And, and they're he, so excited. And then Prince comes in, he's got a bail. And they're like, oh, when is he going to take the bail off? And they're like, he's not taking it off. He's never taking it and off. And then they'll tell them anything they want to know <laughs> to get Prince to take off his bail. <laughs> I got to write this down. Send this to the president.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly who you should send it to. You won't get it... <laughs> That won't raise any red flags at all. Send it directly to the president. I've got an idea how to deal with this terrorist threat. It has to do with gold veils and prints.
1: Why did I just jump 40 years in age in that? uh... (laughs) (laughs) So
2: he doesn't take the veil off. I mean, cut to the chase. He keeps it on. And there are all these legends that, that come up about him. Nobody ever asks him again. Nobody tries to take it off. Well, One thing that is positive to note about the Black Veil is it it says it makes him a very efficient clergyman. Yeah. Because of this emblem, he became a man of awful power over souls that were in agony for sin. So Mm. innocent good people avoid him because he scares them. Mm -hmm. But all over New England, people come to see him if they're tortured by their secret sin. He becomes the go-to guy. In fact, they start calling him Father Hooper. Right. That's how he continues his life. And then eventually he gets old. It becomes his turn to rest. Right. Yeah. And uh, as we tie up the story, we go to his deathbed.
1: And there's this guy, uh, Reverend uh, Mr. Clark of Westbury, who's there. And he's sort of a, a zealous young man. And he's kind of there to tend to him. But also, I think he wants to know what's under the veil. Oh, yes, he does. Like he's really, OK, he's going to die. And I'm going to find out. or maybe he's going to take off the veil. But right before he dies.
2: Yeah, he thinks he's going to be part of this moment of high drama when it happens. Yeah. Now, there's also another uh, esteemed guest at the deathbed.
1: Yeah, Elizabeth, his estranged uh, fiancé.
2: His estranged fiancé. She shows up. I don't think she ever was married. No. She shows up at the end to be with him. And uh, the minister of Westbury says, are you ready for the lifting of the veil that shuts in time from eternity?" And he's thinking, this is going to be the time to do it. But Mm -hmm. never on earth. I'll never do it.
1: And he says, oh, come on, give it a, come on, do it. And he goes, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, and he's dying. He's like, I'm not going to do it. And he goes, okay, no, let's just, this is silly. Let's take it off. And he goes to take it off. And they kind of, he struggles with them. A bit. Yeah, he
2: gets all the strength. goes, No, <laughs> <laughs> you're not taking off the veil. And the whole time he's doing it, you know, his breath is moving the veil. I, and the the minister gets mad at him He says, dark old man With what horrible crime upon your soul Are you now passing to the judgment So he's decided, well since he won't let me take the veil off He's clearly a sinner yeah. He did something terrible And I'm going to say something nasty to him as he goes And then there, the moment comes where Father Hooper's breath heaves He's dying uh, Before he goes, he raises himself up in bed To give
0: his last words Why do you tremble at me alone, cried he Turning his veiled face Round the circle of pale spectators Tremble also at each other. Have men avoided me, and women shown no pity, and children screamed and fled, only for my black veil? What but the mystery which it obscurely typifies has made this piece of grape so awful? When the friend shows his inmost heart to his friend, the lover to his best beloved, when man does not vainly shrink from the eye of his creator, loathsomely treasuring up the secret of his sin, then deem me a monster, for the symbol beneath which I have lived and die. I look around me and lo, on every visage, a black veil. While his auditors shrank from one another in mutual affright, Father Hooper fell back upon his pillow a veiled corpse with a faint smile lingering on the lips. Still veiled, they laid him in his coffin, and a veiled corpse they bore him to the grave. The grass of many years has sprung up and withered on that grave. The burial stone is moss-grown, and good Mr. Hooper's face is dust. But awful is still the thought that it moldered beneath the black veil." Great
2: last line. Yeah, that's great. You got to think he's still there. The black veil's still on.
1: I'm wondering, dude, if you were there and he died, would you have looked under his veil? I no way. No. Yeah, even if you if nobody was around and nobody would know. God would know.
2: <laughs> that is made very clear in this story.
1: <laughs> no, but you you wouldn't be curious? You wouldn't take a little little sneak, a little sneak peek? Uh, you know, I saw
2: Raiders of the Lost Ark. I know what happens. You you look
1: away. You think you'd be so scared that something would get you, that you wouldn't you wouldn't look.
2: Well, all right. So in totally, without making jokes, I I probably would not be able to stop myself from doing it. But <laughs> I think that that would kind of blow the whole thing for you, wouldn't it? I mean, because th- it would just be his face. Yeah. you would just be an old dude. And then you'd put it back and go, oh, well, now I know that. Now my life isn't interesting anymore.
1: But I think I'd want to see his face just to have seen it. I don't know. But there's part of me that would want to respect... Like the fact that he didn't want his face shown. But then he, he said unto death. So
2: you did it and you saw his face. Would you tell anybody
1: else? Wait, are you living in this village? <laughs> yeah, I live in this village. I tell you.
2: I'm the, I'm the blacksmith. All the, the villagers are really into me.
1: Blacksmith Pfeiffer. I go, hey, Blacksmith Pfeiffer, check it out. When I was burying uh, the old minister.
2: My muscles are glistening in the fire right <laughs> now, by the way.
1: <laughs> of course.
2: <laughs> yeah, I have a huge beard too.
1: I took a peek at the the minister. and uh, Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. What's with your voice?
2: I have a deeper voice in this village
1: as well. I was willing to go for the muscly thing. <laughs> the,
2: because you voice. would have
1: been working out a lot more because you'd be a blacksmith. But yeah. the voice, no, it's it's a bridge too far, Pfeiffer.
2: Well, I guess we've ruined this story for everybody.
1: Yeah. I'm. You know what? Let's just shut it down.
2: <laughs> There's more. I, You know, Lovecraft wrote a lot about Hawthorne, but we're running out of time. Yeah. Uh, so I guess we'll have to jump on more of what he has to yeah. say in supernatural horror literature. In supernatural horror and literature about Hawthorne uh, on the next episode. And I think our next story that we're going to cover, another Hawthorne story, Edward Randolph's
1: portrait. Ooh, yay. How does that sound? That sounds like a Lovecraft story, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? really good well I want to thank our sponsor again
2: everybody should go pick up this book Cthulhu Lives an eldritch tribute to H.P. Lovecraft
1: Cthulhu Lives (laughs) Cthulhu
2: Lives explanation point edited by Salome Jones lots of fantastic stories from very talented authors 17 masterful tales of cosmic horror inspired by Lovecraft's work
1: good fun good read pick it up fantastic stuff and don't forget we gotta thank our reader as well Mr. Andrew Lehman Andrew Lehman you are a treasure a gift to mankind a gift Thank you. And with that, I am Chris Lackey. <laughs> I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. HPpodcast.com.